Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. As always, we are covering Colorado true crime stories. And make sure to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And we will go ahead and get right into our episode. If you did not listen to last week's part one of this story, I would recommend stopping right now and going over and checking out episode 18. That really lays out the crime that we're looking at. And if you start right here, you might be a tad confused. For everyone who's up to date and ready to listen, let's get into it. We pick up our story today after the shooting of Bob Evans by his ex-lover, Farise King. After his death, this would start to unravel a side of Bob's life that no one had expected. Police Chief R.F. Reed got word from a man from Des Moines, Iowa, claiming to be Bob Evans' son. He immediately thought this guy had to be full of it. Bob Evans didn't have any children. And especially considering the guy had mentioned a life insurance policy that should be paid out to him, this sounded like a scam if Chief Reed had ever heard one. But it turns out the story was half true. While Lillian, Bob's current wife, would benefit from the life insurance policy, she would learn a dark secret about her now-deceased husband. The son that had contacted Police Chief Reed was Carl, and he was 18 years old at the time. Chief Reed confirmed his story and took the boy and a man that came with him to see Bob Evans' body at the mortuary. Carl was accompanied by a farmer, and when the man saw the body, he confidently declared that this was his brother, John Bobzine. Bob Evans, or John Bobzine, had a scar on his cheek. The farmer, who was his brother, knew this was a childhood injury. Bob Evans, as he was called, had tangled with a barbed wire fence and lost as a kid and left a lasting scar. Bob's son Carl could not identify the body because he had never met his father. Bob Evans had left Emma, if you remember from our story last week, with two very young children, Carl being one of them. If you remember, John Bobzine had left Iowa in 1912. And no one in his family would know his whereabouts until 1927, about 15 years later, when his brother tracked him down. Bob Evans had started to write letters back to his brother, the same farmer who would come to later identify his body, in the months prior to his death. But Bob Evans never contacted his former wife, Emma, or his sons, Carl and Marion. His farmer brother had even come and visited at one point and originally thought that Bobzine had just changed his last name to drop the German origin. After all, this was after the end of World War I, and he thought maybe there was some kind of prejudice that could happen with him having a German last name. 
John Bobstein's Iowa family would find out he was dead via an article in a newspaper and became just another question and blow to the family who knew so little about who John Bobstein had become. And that was Bob Evans. While Police Chief Reed was sorting out Bob Evans' familial relations, other police officers were looking into evidence as to why Farise King killed him. In her room, they would find a plethora of information. There were newspaper clippings from pretty much any time Bob was ever mentioned in the news for an arrest or anything else. There were over 200 letters that Bob had written to King over the years. And I know that sounds obsessive and seems like a lot, but keep in mind their affair went over many years and this was the main mode of communication for the day. And these letters went back to prior to World War I, which at this point was over 11 years prior to the murder. The last little bit of evidence that police came across was in the form of Farise King's diary, which detailed an affair filled with lust, obsession, and betrayal. As you could assume, the media ate this story up. And for the Denver Post, the Farise King-Bob Evans story was the trifecta, bootlegging, romantic scandal, and a cop with a dual identity. The media descended on the key players in this story pretty much immediately. On one side of the story was Bob Evans' current wife, Lillian, and she felt that King was just off her rocker. She talked about that she'd had encounters with King in the past, and one of these encounters included her watching Farise King walking down the street and mumbling to herself. And in a second incident, she ran into King on a streetcar, and King just sat across from her and just glared at her. According to Bob Evans, when Lillian talked about the woman, he assured her that King was just not of sound mind. But the media was not one-sided in its coverage. They also descended on King's twin sister, Clarice Hansen, who she'd been living with on Garfield Street. Clarice basically said that King's behavior was Bob Evans' fault. He had made her do the things that she had done after all these years of courting and rejecting her. The Denver Post also sought out Emma Bobzine for an interview and ran it on the front page at one point. They even went as far as interviewing an astrologist to explain Bob Evans' personality by the stars and... It basically concluded that he had sort of a dual personality, which played in well with this line of him having two identities as well. A staff member from the Denver Post also drove the Bob Zines to Bob Evans' funeral to see if they could get any additional dirt from the Iowa family. And of course, as the media dug into this, they searched official files and brought another wife to the limelight that a lot of people didn't know about, and that was Cicely Lewis that we talked about in our last episode. Had anybody known that John Bobzine and Bob Evans were the same person, he would have been arrested as a bigamist because at the time he married Cicely, he was still married to Emma legally, even though she had no clue where he was. Keep in mind that Emma did not file for divorce until she hadn't heard from her husband in 11 years. 
In a twist of irony, the Justice of the Peace for Sicily and Bob Evans ceremony, which made him a bigamist, was the future mayor of Denver, Ben Stapleton. The longest running reports on this crime was done by the Denver Post top female reporter at the time, which you have to think how cool this is because there were not a lot of female reporters at the time and she was covering this case that was so in the limelight. Her name was Frances Pinky Wayne and she was 54 at the time. Pinky was actually the daughter of Colorado's first congressman, and she was just this red-headed firecracker that just went out and reported and got the information she wanted. She was even the only woman to cover the 1914 Ludlow Massacre. And if you're wondering what this incident is, you won't have to wonder for much longer. I'm actually working on an episode about this massacre that'll be coming your way soon. Pinky was also a staunch feminist for the time, and she immediately flew to Farise King's side, and she wrote about the case from Farise's perspective. And with that in mind, she sought the most interesting interview anybody would get about the case, an interview with Farise herself. Pinky's first interview with Farise King took place in jail just three months after Bob Evans was killed. Farise King had been spending time healing from the gunshot wound that she had inflicted upon herself. Pinky found that Farise King came from a really stable family. She was one of five children, and all of the children grew up and had really respectable careers. She and her twin, Clarice, both became nurses, and her brothers were a dentist, a mortician, and a druggist, which is essentially today's pharmacist. So there really was no indication from her upbringing from what an outsider could see that would really explain her snapping in the way that she did. Farise King was taken to a psychiatric hospital at one point to determine if she was fit to stand trial. And it was determined she was fit and in sane mind. But during her time in jail, Farise King often begged to be killed. She had intended to do so, and now she was becoming a gaunt woman and was eaten away by her situation and the regret of what she had done. She became known in the media as the woman scorned. You know what they say, hell hath no fury. Farise King was eventually charged in Bob Evans' death by a coroner's jury. Now, remember from episode 17, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about what a coroner is. A coroner is not necessarily a doctor or a medical examiner. They are an elected official that determines the cause of death for a person. And we know what a grand jury is from a lot of our last few episodes. It basically is a sort of trial that happens prior to charges being brought against someone so that a jury can decide that the evidence against the person is really worth having them be charged and really worth going to trial for. A coroner's jury works very similarly, but for the aspect of a case that coroner has control over. 
So a coroner's jury is a group of anywhere from 6 to 20 people that help determine the cause of death for a person. It's basically the coroner bringing in a group of unbiased individuals to be able to go over evidence and see, is this really a murder? Should we have it posted as a homicide, then leading into an investigation, etc., etc., etc.? So, Farisa's actual courtroom trial was started on February 25th, 1929, and people clamored for seats at the courtroom. Louis Mowry, a lawyer known for high-profile criminal cases, was hired by the King family to defend Farise. He used a defense that had worked well for him in a previous case. He basically posed that Faris suffered from melancholia, also known as love mania at the time, and that she basically was just so desperate she was not thinking anything near being in her right mind. He basically laid out that Bob's seduction, along with her recent divorce and death of her baby, was just too much for her to bear. The prosecution did a great job of countering what the defense had laid out as her irrational reasoning for the shooting. The prosecution countered defense doctors with doctors of their own, saying that Farise King was faking the episodes. She did not have any kind of mania. And the prosecution rested after just a matter of hours. And they laid out that this was intentional, that she had to take the time and the money to go buy a revolver. The district attorney at the time, Earl Wettengel, also pointed out that for this whole time that she was so in this love mania, she was working as a nurse and taking care of other people. So how would she be able to do that if she was so unhinged? But Maori really worked to weave a story of King's desperation and her mental state at the time of the incident. He had King's family members take the stand to explain her obsession with Bob and increasing depression. In one testimony, a family member talked about the death of her brother Ray in 1915. Farise King had clung to his deceased body in her bed, wishing for him to be alive and for herself to be dead. We can see this was clearly the beginning of her decline in coping mechanisms and maybe overall mental stability. They also had Dr. Leo Tepley speak on the condition of melancholia, or love mania, and really explain what was affecting her at the time. At one dramatic point in the defense's testimony, Clarice, Farise's twin sister, got up to read some of the love letters that had come from Bob Evans, and Farise tried to take the love letters from her defense attorney as he presented them to the DA as evidence and just went into a huge episode of sobbing and that those were hers and they belonged to her and they were her love letters and just she was inconsolable. And really, Farise King was inconsolable a majority of her trial. She cried anytime there was mention of Bob or of her deceased baby girl. And King's tears weren't the only ones. They were matched by the female onlookers at the courtroom all dressed in what would have been flapper attire. Farise King was scheduled to take the stand in her own defense, but on the way there, she threw herself and sobbed onto a pile of clothing evidence. 
This clothing was Bob's bloody pajamas that he had worn the last day he was in the hospital. They had been used for some evidence in a previous testimony and were still laying out. She was sobbing so inconsolably that a recess was called and alienists, as they were called at the time, otherwise known as psychiatrists today, attempted to soothe her. And she just was raving and was in no state to testify. So she did not end up testifying in her own defense. And even until now, there's a lot of questions about this particular happening in the courtroom. Some people are in the camp that she had faked it, and it was really a part of the defense's overall theory that she had love mania, and that's why she killed Bob Evans. Some people think that her defense attorney, Maori had maybe staged the items, trying to trigger what was a true mania in her, but trigger it in a way that the jury and everyone would see the state that she was in. Or the third option is that it was just an accident they were left out and it was just something that happened. No matter which way you slice this, it left the eloquent Maury to paint the picture for the jury of what had happened in Faris King's mind. And he sat through in describing the stages of emotions she went through upon seeing Bob Evans in those few days leading up to the shooting. That there was initial excitement that she saw her ex-lover and the man that she really had hung all of her romantic hopes on. Then that he made this proposition to her of only a sexual relationship, but he still never intended on marrying her. And then she rebuffed with an effort to make him jealous with mention of her fiancé, James Daniels, and even an attempt to kiss him in which he rebuffed her. And then there was a moment where she thought to attempt to only kill herself, but instead decided to kill both of them. In addition to all of these emotions that she went through in these just matter of 20 or 32 hours of seeing Bob Evans. It was also during his hospital stint that she learned about his first wife, Emma, for the very first time. Farise King had said she basically had moved in a daze through writing the suicide note and letter to her brother and shooting Bob Evans. In Alan Pendergast's reporting for Westward, he quotes Maury, the defense attorney, as saying, quote, When she asked him why he did not marry her, he said, You got as much as the others got. The black clouds of melancholia swirled up and overwhelmed her. She remembers writing nothing and can recall nothing of the shooting, unquote. For some reason, when... Maury encouraged the jury to make their decision. They were only given two options, first-degree murder or acquit Faris King based on an insanity plea. They were never given the option of manslaughter. On a Sunday afternoon, the jury announced that Faris King was guilty and would receive life in prison for shooting Bob Evans. She was 39 when she was convicted. Her defense attorney, Maury, said of the verdict, quote, The jurors have justified seduction, bigamy, and wife desertion, unquote. Faris King was sentenced on March 3, 1929. 
Her defense had hoped that she would get a win during the appeal process. The major ploy they were going after was a jury member that may have been prejudiced against King. A few years prior to the trial, this specific juror had found out that his wife was allegedly talking to another man or possibly having an affair, and he shot her during a scuffle and she died. After searches for appeals were overruled, Faris went to Canyon City on February 27, 1930, to start serving her sentence. King said all along that she would have preferred death. This court case sent ripples through the culture of Colorado and women's rights in general. King hit a really odd chord in the progress of women's equality. She was the first woman to get a life sentence for murdering a lover. Most others got off or got leniency due to being provoked in some way. Say, for example, if the perpetrator was a man, he wouldn't have gotten off for saying he'd been insulted or threatened before killing someone. Whereas oftentimes during this time frame, when a woman said that, it got her leniency. As Alan Pendergast reported, the phrase during the time basically became, quote, if they can vote, they can hang, unquote. A number of women's groups came to King's defense, and they totally understood her reaction. A record-breaking petition was circulated for a new trial for Faris King, and it got 100,000 signatures. But once this petition was delivered to judges, who all, of course, were male, the petition was turned down. The Denver Post, fueled by Pinky's stories, even tried to drum up a petition of their own, which is kind of hilarious because it doesn't seem like very unbiased reporting to me. The Denver Post only got 15,000 signatures. Basically, any petition was no good. The governor of Colorado at the time, William Adams, was known for refusing to grant paroles, pardons, or anything in opposition with a court of law. Bob Evans' Iowa brother, W. Bobzine, even wrote Adams asking that King not be pardoned for her crime. Faris King eventually became one of the most infamous female inmates in the state. But while at Colorado State Penitentiary, she nursed a matron, who was a female guard, who had gotten chemicals in her eyes. And this woman would have lost her eyesight if it wasn't for Faris King. The intrepid reporter Pinky tried for a pardon of Faris again when the governor's seat changed over to Ed Johnson, who was a much softer character than Adams was. At this point, the district attorney Wettengel that was on the prosecution against Faris King was even on board. He felt that she had served her time, since the case could have been a manslaughter and probably should have been a manslaughter if the jury had been directed correctly. In 1933, Governor Johnson changed the sentence to a short 20 years. At this point, Faris King had already served three years. A year later, in 1934, she was allowed to visit her 81-year-old mother who was on her deathbed. While Faris King was out to see her family, Governor Johnson granted her parole on February 13, 1934. At that point, Faris King had served four years total for her crime. Then, a couple years later, in December 1936, 
Faris King was granted an unconditional pardon for the killing of Bob Evans. After Faris King laid her mother to rest, she disappeared into obscurity. Her twin sister Clarice died in 1975, and Lillian Evans, who never showed any pity for Faris King, died in Texas in 1981. The only person that knew of Faris King was a nephew in Denver, and he only had a few very vague childhood memories of her. He lost touch and had no idea where she ended up or how she lived out the rest of her life. What we do know is a Mrs. Francie McBurney died at age 79, and this was published on September 4, 1969. Her husband had died four years prior, and the two had no children together. This took place in Butler, Missouri. The best that people can tell is this was Farise, but having no children to correct an incorrect name, Francie, she was laid to rest with a name slightly different than her own. We can only wonder if she maybe found love that was not unrequited, but returned stable and healthy. And if you're wondering how her husband died, I don't have the answer for you. Now, you may be wondering, what happened to our cop killer, Eddie Ives, that we talked about in the last episode? In 1889, 19 Denver officers had been killed in the line of duty, and most of the incidents were unsolved. Only one perpetrator was found guilty and hung for the crime of killing an officer. So when Eddie Ives killed Officer Ole, the police were geared on finding him guilty. Also fueled by the fact that both Ole's father-in-law and brother were also on the force. Eddie Ives' trial started on December 17, 1928, and his friend, Henry Hill, testified against him. Ives testified in his own defense, and he claimed that Henry Hill was under the bed and shot Ole. It only took one ballot for the jury to find Ives unanimously guilty, and the court sentenced him to death. If you remember from last episode, Eddie Ives had also shot and killed Lavina Reese. She didn't die immediately, but she died from her wounds later in the hospital. Ives was not charged with Lavina's murder because they only needed one conviction to send him to the gallows. On February 21, 1929, Eddie Ives began to serve his sentence. He tried to appeal based on that there was a law that someone could not be executed based on circumstantial evidence, but the Supreme Court approved that he could still be served the sentence of death. The verdict and his wait for the gallows drove Ives insane. He continually rambled and eventually became mute and refused to talk to anyone. The prison warden at the time wanted the execution to be delayed so that Ives could be psychologically evaluated in Denver. But psychiatrists deduced that he was sane and fit for the execution. Ives would give one last coherent sentence on his way to Canyon City. According to Alan Pendergast reporting, he said, quote, for God's sake, give me a cigarette, unquote. Ives' execution was delayed again and over something we've talked about in another episode. We talked about Canyon City and the Colorado State Penitentiary in episode six. Eddie Ives' execution was delayed because the riot of October 1929 had just hit the prison. 
And one of the hostages that was killed in this riot was 30-year-old veteran hangman Jack Elise. Eddie Ives converted to Catholicism while in prison, and he refused to take part in the riot when he could have had every opportunity to do some bad and even possibly escape. He continued to insist that Henry Hill had shot Oli even as he was headed to the gallows, but he was met with no mercy. As a young burglar, a Denver detective had warned him about his ways. As Pendergast reports, Eddie Ives had confidently said, quote, They couldn't hang me if they wanted to. A noose couldn't crack my neck. It's too small to spring the trap. Unquote. Little did he know that his words would be all too true. Eddie Ives was taken to the gallows on January 10, 1930, and was 46 when he was set to be executed. So here is how a traditional Western gallow worked. The person being executed would have a rope noose put around their neck. The guard would use a lever that would send a weight down a tube. At the same time, the lever would also open a trap door below the person. The weight would come down the tube, pulling the rope taut, and this would break the prisoner's neck. There basically would be enough force at both ends of the body, one with the weight and the other with the body weight of the person now hanging loose because that trapdoor has been pulled out from underneath them. Because Eddie Ives was so small, 80 pounds soaking wet, the noose and the weight did not break his neck. The weight instead sent him upwards and the rope fell off the pulley. And before anyone knew it, he was instead on the floor in front of the executioner's witnesses, gasping and alive. The executioner would have to try a total of three times to execute Eddie Ives. Colorado lore has it that rocks were put in Ives' pockets at one point to try to make him heavier. On the third hanging, Eddie Ives eventually choked to death, and it took 23 minutes. After he perished, Eddie Ives' body was taken to Woodpecker Hill, an area for unclaimed prisoners in the Canyon City Cemetery. According to a book called Mountain Murders by Betty Alt and Sandra Wells, Ives cried after his first failed hanging, quote, you can't hang a man twice, unquote. But apparently you can. So I told you guys this one was worth a two-parter. There was a lot of twists and turns in this story. So let's wrap up with a few thoughts. Musing number one. It's interesting to look at articles about this story and how the story changed as it was reported on. The very first article you see right after Bob Evans was shot reports him with having a K in his middle name, which was King, which he took to prove his love for Faris King. But it also reported that he had no children, which everyone found out after the fact he had children, just nobody knew that they were Bob Evans' children because they were John Bobzine's children, who still was the same person. <laughs> Musing number two. There were no women on Faris King's jury because it was not allowed at the time. So her jury was an all-male jury. But you have to wonder if there would have been a different outcome in her case or if she'd gotten some leniency. 
because we do know that the women that were in the courtroom watching were very moved by her and by her sobbing. So who knows how this case might have turned out different at a different point in time. Musing number three. This case also exposed flaws in the justice system in Colorado, and not necessarily for Farise King's court case, but actually for what happened to Eddie Ives. His case changed how the state handled capital punishment. The gory story of the man who hung twice, well, actually three times, really took off. Thomas Tennan, the ex-warden of Colorado Penitentiary, was quoted in Alan Pendergast reporting as saying, quote, more than half of the men executed at Canyon City have not been hanged at all. They have been strangled, unquote. There was some real outcry for how executions were being handled in Canyon City, and it would lead to, in 1933, hanging being replaced with the new gas chamber that came into Canyon City and into the penitentiary. And again, if you haven't listened to episode six and you want to hear a little bit more about the area of Colorado called Prison Valley and this historic jail in particular, I would definitely recommend going back to that. Again, that's episode six. Musing number four. Here's another strange one in how Eddie Ives' case could have played out differently. If you remember when we talked about serial killer Scott Kimball in episode four and five, part of what got him put away for such a long time is something called the habitual crime law in Colorado. It basically lays out that if someone does the same type of crime habitually, they can receive a harsher sentence than just if they did it once. So had this existed in the time of Eddie Ives's case, he actually probably would have gotten a longer sentence after his third offense, and the whole situation with Oli and Bob Evans may have never even occurred because he may have still been in prison. So it makes you wonder, what would have happened with our entire story if there had never been that shot fired at two patrolmen that landed Bob Evans in a hospital ward with the nurse that was his ex-lover who on and on and on and on. <laughs> you have a lot of cases of circumstance in this particular case that people were crossing paths that maybe could have never crossed paths if the laws were a little different at the time. And it also shows why a law like this is in effect. It keeps things like this from happening. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this historical feature. I definitely like throwing these in every once in a while because I think it's interesting to look at true crime at kind of a different lens that isn't our modern laws or modern society. So I hope you guys are enjoying them too. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform and connect with me on social media. Let me know what you thought about the case. You can catch me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also visit AltitudeCrime.com for source materials and the link to merchandise. As always, thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. And I cannot wait to tell you another Colorado true crime story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 19, 
Fatal Attraction, Bob Evans and Farise King, Part 2, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.